Are you the type of person who loves learning about everything macabre? Like how many people die in amusement parks every year? Or if you have what it takes to survive a night in an extreme haunted house? Or what exactly is the dark web? Join us as we talk about all these things and more on our podcast, Booze and Beaches and Booze. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your favorite podcasts. We release new episodes every Wednesday. That's Booze, B-O-O-S, and Beaches, B-E-E-T-C-H-E-S, and Booze, B-O-O-Z-E. Bye, Bye, Beaches! Hello and welcome back to Shockingly Wicked, a true crime podcast where we bring you true crime cases from the headlines to the hometowns. I'm Brianna. I'm Brittany. And we are your hosts for the evening. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. We have a couple of shout outs, so we might as well just go ahead and jump right into that, shall we? Okay, well first, I'm going to shout out our first ever monetary supporter, Justin. You know who you are, Justin. I don't want to count your cool info. Okay, so I like glitter. Thank you so much for the review. Dirty Head Courtney 94 Appreciate your username. Thank you for the review. <laughs> Dr. Stacy Hughes, you're the best. Thank you so much. Argie, thank you for not making it weird. <laughs> inside joke in between me and Bree and Argie. Yes. And being cakes. Thanks for the review. Also, real quick, my friend Nicole over in the UK, you said the best bedtime stories. I appreciate that you listen to us before you go to sleep. I don't know how you don't have terrifying dreams, but I guess that's just me. Especially after the Terrell Peterson case. <laughs> yeah, that one. Whew, that was intense. And if you want a future shout out, you know what to do. Leave us a five star review, not ratings review. Yes, because we can't see who rated, but we can see who wrote a review. But... This one is our next big case. As you know, when we started, we had a two-parter episode with H.H. Holmes. So what we have decided we're going to do is we're going to do a big case at the beginning of the month, have probably two parts for each, and then we do smaller cases in between on the other weeks. That way, if you want to skip the big episodes, you can. If you prefer to have everything condensed into one episode, you can. And you know generally what to expect from here on out with our schedule. Today's case, I was actually planning on doing this one sooner before I realized how much information there was involved in this case. And so we decided we were going to do it in a bigger episode. This is the murder of Derek and Nancy Hasem. And I swear to you, I did not actually intend on doing all of these cases <laughs> uh, that happened in Virginia. It just so happens that all of them that I have covered so far have <laughs> happened within like three hours of where I live. So what can I say? We're a very murdery state. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so this one happened in Bedford County, which is the county that I actually live in now. So this one's a little bit closer to home, but it happened back in 1985. So murders took place. <laughs> yeah, it seems like the 80s was definitely a very deadly decade from the 80s and the 70s, but I think that's because of like hitchhikers and no DNA. Yep, yeah, true. 
this case is definitely interesting because I've noticed that there has been more talk of it within the last couple of years. And I did see when I was researching, they're actually planning on making a movie based around this case. I believe it's going to have Gugu Mbatha-Ra as a detective, Kiernan Shipka, who was in The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. She's going to play Elizabeth Hasem, I believe. And then Jens is going to be played by Cole Sprouse, which I'm a little disappointed about because it's... Cole Sprouse is the worst Sprouse. I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> Dylan Sprouse is superior yeah. to his twin brother. Agreed. But I don't really like either one of them, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> they started losing relevance to me back after like Sweet Life. I was so. about to say Sweet Life on deck. <laughs> All right. So this one is going to be turned into a movie, but there has actually been a documentary. I think it came out a couple of years ago, maybe 2016 or something like that, called Killing for Love, which focuses on this case more from Jens's side. He is actually interviewed throughout that documentary. So a lot of the information that I got for this case was from that, but I've also pulled from various sources. Detective Ricky Gardner, who was one of the lead detectives on this case, he was the reason why I found out about this case a couple of years ago when I was still in school. We had to do these after school psychology activities. They were basically extra credit. So you need to do so many in a semester. And one of them was he was coming to the school to tell us about the case, essentially. And so that was the first time I had ever heard about it. So that kind of sparked my interest in it. And now I know way too much about this case. So <laughs> our second episode, we're going to have a surprise. Yes, we're going to have a surprise guest. Until the next episode. We will say that it is an interview with somebody who is important to the case Ooh. for a major reason. But like we said, we're not going to tell you until the next episode. because <laughs> We're going to leave you on your toes. Because we want you to come back. It's called Cliffhanger. Look it up. <laughs> All right. So we'll go ahead and do some background. First on our victims, Derek and Nancy Hasem. Nancy Hasem was an American who was known by the nickname Sita. I don't know how you get the nickname Sita from Nancy, but... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's like a middle name. I don't know. Anyway, Derek Hasem, he was an engineer from South Africa. I guess the two of them met in Johannesburg, South Africa, and were married sometime in the early 60s. They had both been married previously and were divorced at the time. And so they had five adult children from previous marriages. And Elizabeth Hasem was their only child together, and she was born in 1964. At the time, they were living in Nova Scotia, Canada, and he was running a steel mill there. When they decided to retire, they decided to move to Nancy's hometown town of, I don't know if she was actually born in Lynchburg, Virginia, or if it was in just that general area, but they decided to move back to her hometown. It was a small cottage that they called Loose Chippings. I don't know why, but you'll see people refer to the crime scene as Loose Chippings, so that's what that's for. The Hasems were really well known and they were respected individuals in Bedford County. Derek was described by one of his kids, as being a parent from a previous generation. It's not even mean. <laughs> so this was like the quote from the article that I was reading. He's quote, publicly gregarious, privately reserved and authoritarian. I guess he was very much what you would imagine as the father from the very old sitcoms who was very like st stern. Oh, you know what that makes you think of? Red from, yes. I don't even watch this show. What is the show? That 70s show? I don't put a 
my foot up your ass. <laughs> yeah, basically. Derek was 72 and Nancy was 52 when they were murdered. Whoa, 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 whoa. Age gap. Yeah, because I didn't actually find their ages until I was reading this New Yorker article about it. And I was like, wow. That's like 20 years. That is 20 years. And I have some thoughts about that. But uh, I guess we can't disparage the dead. <laughs> okay, so a little bit more about Elizabeth Haysom. She attended the Wycombe Academy in England. She claims that her parents were never really there for her while she was at school. That. Claims that her father believes that she was perfect and adored her while her relationship with her mother was more strained. When she was on the stand later, she actually said that she hated her mother. She claims that her mother sexually abused her, took naked photos of her, and that their family friend... Annie Massey, who comes into play a little bit later, knew about the photographs, but Annie denies that. In her final year at Wycombe, it said that she botched her interview to get into Trinity College in Cambridge. She blew off her A-levels. A-levels are like the UK equivalent of finals, I guess. I don't know specifically. I just know that they're like very important tests that kind of determine your next step and that she ran away with a female lover to travel through Europe. Well, so it is the last day of Pride Month, so... <laughs> This is true. For this reason, she didn't actually start attending the University of Virginia until she was about 20 years old. So she was about two years older, I believe, than most of the people her age when she started. She admitted to using drugs extensively, specifically LSD and heroin. Jesus. Yeah, the really hardcore stuff. And then she also claims that her parents were incredibly controlling of her life, wanted her to be the perfect daughter, and would parade her around as that. So I imagine... If that's the case, she felt a lot of pressure to be that perfect child. And maybe that's part of the reason why she indulged in drugs. I don't know. <laughs> Our final background piece is for Jens Soering. He was a German student. He was born in Thailand, but he was largely educated in the American South. I believe his father originally was working in Atlanta. So Jens's father was a bureaucrat with the German Consular Service who worked in Atlanta, and then he later transferred to Detroit, I believe, around the time that Jens started going to UVA. I think he met Eminem. <laughs> I don't think Eminem's the only person who lived in Detroit. I know, but like, he's the only person I know from Detroit. <laughs> In high school, Jens was the editor for the school newspaper. He did photography and theater, played guitar in garage bands. He won an art award and took many AP classes. I love that for him. Yeah, he was just involved in a whole lot of stuff. And I guess that he wanted these extracurriculars to help him get into German universities and all that. But he got accepted to UVA as a Jefferson Scholar, which they said was like the elite of the elite. And he had a full scholarship and... I guess it also came with some spending money as well. One thing I did see was that his father had a temper and his mother was an alcoholic, but they didn't really go too deep into his relationship with his family. So, I mean, it's not really all that important, I guess. Nor there, guys. <laughs> yes. So, in August of 1984, August 25th, Elizabeth and Jens met each other at the University of Virginia at a barbecue for the Eccles Scholars. Elizabeth was an Eccles Scholar, so they were both very smart people. So Jens had just turned 18, and so this was his first time away from home, really, being out on his own, exploring the world as most college kids do. I thought that this was 
funny, but on the stand, Elizabeth claims that her first impression of Jens was that he was very rude, hostile, and aggressive, but that he was also very brilliant. Let him live his life. Well, it's funny because in the New Yorker article I was reading, she, I guess, liked the fact that he was kind of aloof, if that makes sense. So I think we'll go into it a little bit more in the next episode, but I think that because she was on the stand, that she was trying to make him out to be the person who is likely to have committed this crime, if that makes sense. And then Yen said that he found Elizabeth to be worldly and quote, damn sexy. <laughs> so oh. if you <laughs> if you watch the Killing for Love documentary, that was his exact words was damn sexy. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. <laughs> I guess Elizabeth wrote this letter to Jens when she realized that she loved him. I have a quote here and it's a little bit long, but I felt like it was necessary to point this out just because it kind of speaks to Elizabeth's character. So, quote, I hated my love for you for a long time. I hated myself for discovering vulnerability, but as the weeks passed, I began to understand. I had always believed that I made men fall in love with me so that I could take out all the hatred I felt for them by humiliating them. I despised their cheap lust and easy passions. And in the end, I made them hate themselves for loving me and the torture I inflicted. I would make a man humiliate himself to obtain me, then I would give him the best fuck he's ever likely to get and then walk out. Girl, go to therapy. (laughs) Yeah, she... She was something else, but it was just the fact that she admits that she would make men fall in love with her to do whatever she wanted to them, if that makes sense. So keep that in mind. (laughs) She and Jens had actually only been together for about three months before the murders happened because I guess they didn't actually officially like get together until December or like November or something like that towards the end of that semester. During the winter holidays when they went back home, Elizabeth wrote a letter to Jens when she was at home. Another one? There are a lot of letters. I mean, it makes sense because that's the primary means of communication in those days, but... Yeah, I forgot they don't have cell phones. <laughs> yes, they do not have cell phones. The age is doing so sorry. <laughs> so she wrote a letter explaining how unhappy she was at home. In it, she mentions specifically, like, willing her parents dead through voodoo or black magic. Okay, that's normal. Yeah, and then from the same letter, here's another quote. It was, we can either wait till we graduate and then leave them behind, or we can get rid of them soon. My mother said today that if some accident befell them, she knew I would become a worthless adventurer, more maternal acumen. So obviously that speaks to their relationship being very strained, but the fact that she's talking about wanting her parents dead, yeah, it could be young adult teen angst type of stuff, but at the same time, the fact that they were murdered, (laughs) I feel like that's... Elizabeth, that's not looking good for you, girl. Yeah. Allegedly, Elizabeth claims that Jens was angry with her parents because she claimed that they didn't want her to have him in her life. So this quote was from the New Yorker article, A College Romance That Led to Murder, and it's written by Nathan Heller. This is from the November 2015 issue, but you can find it online. I have it linked in the sources. So, quote, that winter, the Hasems came to Charlottesville to take the young couple to lunch. They grilled Suring about his family and his past. When the Hasems hosted a niece of Derek's a week or so later, they were still talking about the weirdness of the meal. They worried that Suring had insufficient, quote, standing for their daughter. Nancy Hasem found him oddly jumpy at the table too. So it's possible that they did think that Jens was weird, 
but that was really the only thing I could find about how they felt about him. Leave him alone. He has dreamed his bed. <laughs> yeah, like he's 18. The garage band for Jesus. <laughs> yeah, he's 18. And I imagine because this was his first time away from home and it's probably his first major girlfriend. Because if you look at him, he's a very nerdy looking guy. Aww. So the nerds. he probably wanted to make a good impression, but he was nervous. I don't know. Whatever. So. Now that the background stuff is all done, it's time for the crime. On the morning of April 3rd, 1985, three women who played bridge with Mr. Hasem arrived what to their bridge? house. What is bridge? It's a game for old people. I don't actually know what it is. <laughs> I think it's a card game, oh, okay. if I remember right. Anyway, they arrived to find that the door was locked, but the light for outside was flipped on, which was odd because it was daytime, and nobody answered the door. So they called, I think Annie Massey was a neighbor, if I remember right, and she had a spare key just in case anything were to happen. And I saw this, but I don't know if it's actually correct because I think I only saw it in one place, but they say that Elizabeth Hasem called Annie Massey that same morning saying she couldn't get in contact with her parents and hadn't been able to for about a week. So Annie's worried because she also hasn't been able to get in contact with them. So she goes to the house to check, finding both Derek and Nancy dead. It was a very gruesome crime scene as well. I wouldn't recommend looking up the crime scene pictures unless you're not queasy. But I will describe a little bit of stuff. So Derek was on his side near a doorway with his arms stretched out before him. His carotid and his jugular arteries had been cut and he was stabbed 36 times. Jeez. Nancy was in the kitchen. The blood that was around her, it looked like somebody had tried to wipe it up. You know, like circular motion kind of thing. So it looked like somebody had tried to wipe it up, but obviously it was a lot of blood. So the lab techs estimated about 90% of the surface of the living room and the kitchen was covered in blood. That's a lot. Yes. Another thing to note was that their blood alcohol levels were 0.22, which is considered excessively high. When people were investigating the crime scene, there were no signs of forced entry. Yeah. I I just saw the picture. I think it's Nancy. She's in blue. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was bad. Okay, sorry. (laughs) No, it's okay. Your reaction is how I felt when I first saw the crime scene photos. So when they were doing the investigation, they realized that there were no signs of forced entry. The dinner table was set for three people, not for two. And that Nancy was wearing her nightgown, which... You would think she wouldn't do if it was a stranger in their house. You know, she would probably dress up because, like I said, they were really well-respected people. I believe they were well off. Wait, so this is it- like off topic, but Elizabeth kind of looks like Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> it's not funny, but she does. She has the same nose. <laughs> I have not considered that, but now I'm never going to unsee that. Thank you. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Okay, so the fact that the table was set for three and she was wearing her nightgown, there's no signs of forced entry, led investigators to think that it was somebody that they knew that had done this because otherwise there would have been forced entry. And usually when you see a crime scene that's this bad, it's because it was a crime of passion. Somebody felt very, 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 very strongly about their need to kill these people. Period. Actually, (laughs) That and what's the other one they consider crime or passion? Oh, strangling. Yeah. Because you have to look the person, most of the time, 
Mm-hmm. You're not covering their face. Most yeah. of the time when you strangle somebody, you have to look that person in their eyes and it takes like, what, seven minutes? It definitely takes a while. And like, because on TV, they make it seem like it happens in like 30 seconds, but that's because they have a time slot that they need to keep it in. But it's never that fast. Yeah. And then at the crime scene, there were four blood group types found. There was A and AB, which were the Hasems. Then there was B blood and O blood. And we've mentioned this in a couple of the past episodes, but forensics at this time weren't very specific. They couldn't identify DNA to specific people. They could only identify the blood groups. So yes, isn't it if you have B blood, you had to come from somebody who had AB blood? I think so. And so B was Elizabeth's blood type group. And O was Jens's blood type group. Wow. So you have O and you're just out here murdering people. <laughs> well, to be fair, a really, really high percentage of people have O blood. I have O blood. <laughs> Wait, O is the one that you can give. Yeah. O is the universal donor. So a lot of people have O blood. I think I'm B. I don't know. I think it just means I can only give B blood. Yeah. So that was part of the evidence that they found was the blood type groups matched both Elizabeth and Jens. So Throughout the investigation, there were a couple of other suspects. I think the primary one who was one of the first suspects was a woman named Margaret Louise. She was a suspect for about a month and a half. She was an ex-fiance of one of Derek Hasem's sons. I guess they broke off the engagement and she was spurned because of that. And she had actually been admitted to a psychiatric hospital in the past. So they were like, oh, well, it's possible that maybe she had been involved. Another thing that kind of led to it was that a few weeks before the murders, she went to a friend and gave that friend some knives and asked him to keep them because, quote, evil spirits were pursuing her. It sounds like she has schizophrenia. (laughs) Yeah, it definitely sounds like... I mean, not saying she had only like... It definitely sounded like she had some issues going on. Oh, I forgot to mention, in the blood at the crime scene, there were footprints that were found as well. One of them, I believe, was somebody wearing a shoe and then other ones were in socks. They matched those foot impressions or they compared them to Margaret Louise's and they didn't match any of the prints at the crime scene. So she was ruled out after that. Let Margaret Louise live her life. <laughs> yes. Annie Massey and her husband drove to Charlottesville to tell Elizabeth in person about her parents being murdered. Annie said that Elizabeth just kind of put her hand to her head and didn't speak for a while. But then they brought Elizabeth Jens and Elizabeth's roommate back with them to gather with the family in Lynchburg. So there was a profile done by Special Agent Ed Salzbach. His profile identified that it was most likely a woman, determined and kind of narrowed it down to it probably being Elizabeth because they believed that Mrs. Hasem would never have entertained strangers while wearing a nightgown and a robe. So it had to be someone she was close with. So could be, you know, let Miss Hasem do what she wants <laughs> to do with her life. Don't just make assumptions. I mean, that is technically their entire job. But yeah, profiling is essentially just <laughs> making assumptions based off the evidence that you have in front of you. But it comes down to interpretation because some people will have one opinion and others will have a completely different opinion. That's why you have varying expert testimonies in trials. In the Killing for Love documentary, there's actually some discrepancy about whether a profile was actually done oh. between the police officers because Chuck Reed, who was one of the main detectives on the case as well, he said that one was done, but Major Ricky Gardner insists that no criminal profile had been conducted and that 
like I guess there was a letter sent to people in the interview on official letterhead from the Bedford County Sheriff's Department saying that there was no criminal profile that had ever been done. So that I thought was a little sketchy. Yeah. But at the same time, it was also the 80s. So it's possible they didn't really keep good records. And maybe it got lost. I don't know. So Ricky Gardner and Chuck Reed were handed the case after a couple of months. This was actually Ricky Gardner's first homicide case. Elizabeth became a person of interest, actually, when they were trying to eliminate her as a suspect. And we'll get right to that after a quick word about our sponsors. As most people know, when they're investigating a murder or just any crime in general, they're going to look at the people closest to the victims first to see if there is any motivation, so to speak, for them to have been. Yeah, like you can't just assume. So basically, when they interviewed Elizabeth and they were trying to get information from her, she claimed that her father had enemies in Canada, which... Like, um, I'm sorry. I am my friend, Devin. She's from Canada. All of Canada just have grudges. Well, and I think it's weird because it's like he was a steel mill executive, but he was also retired. He was like 72. So I'm just like, well, maybe it's like it could be somebody he fired. I mean, maybe, but that didn't seem as prevalent of a motivation back then as it is nowadays. Who knows? Um, but during that interview, she claims that she and Jens rented a car and they went to D.C. that weekend that the murder happened. However, what they didn't anticipate, I guess, was the police checking the odometer on the car <laughs> because it's about 240 miles round trip from Charlottesville, where University of Virginia is, to Washington, D.C. But there were 669 miles on the car. When they brought that to Elizabeth's attention, she said that they got lost. But considering it's only 240 miles round trip, you would think it's not going to be 400 extra miles on the car just because you got lost. Unless you went in the opposite direction. <laughs> they calculated the mileage that it would take to drive from Charlottesville to D.C. to Lynchburg and then back to D.C. And that was pretty on par with that 669 miles on the car. Yeah. They did find hair and fingerprints at the scene, but they didn't match Yen's. Two of the fingerprints found did belong to Elizabeth, though. Yeah, but I mean, she not, also... I was going to say, that's her parents' house, so that's not like two... Well, that and she lived with her parents at the time, oh. so that I'm a little iffy on. If they found the fingerprints in blood, that's another thing. Yeah. But <laughs> it wasn't specified where they found them. Well, even but. if they found Yen's, that was her boyfriend, so... Yeah, so I mentioned that they also found DNA, but they could only identify groups mm-hmm. and not actual blood types. They retested the DNA within the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And they ruled out Jens as a suspect from that O blood. And that actually is related to the interview that we are going to have in part two, where we will elaborate more on that. But at the time, obviously, they did not know that. So during Jens's trial, Elizabeth claimed that Jens had stolen the keys to her parents' house, and she had only discovered that they'd been missing when they returned to UVA after that weekend. (laughs) And she says that he said he threw out the keys along with the knife that he used. Police luminaled the rental car because I guess in this alibi story that Elizabeth was claiming was that Jens drove all the way back to D.C. covered in blood, which, first of all, why would anybody do that? Because that would be uncomfortable. But secondly, don't you think that he would have thought, oh, what if I got pulled over, you know, and somebody saw me? Adrenaline. Adrenaline. (laughs) Adrenaline going. (laughs) True. 
like, let me get there. That's the theory. Go check me. Not today. <laughs> That's possible. So police luminaled the rental car and luminol is basically the black light that they do to check and see if there's any blood evidence or just any sort of evidence in the car. But there was no evidence of blood whatsoever. The woman from the rental car company said that the car required no cleaning when it was returned. So that throws the idea of him driving back covered in blood out the window, you yeah. know. And rental car companies, they're very strict. So, yeah, like, you gotta I know, pay cause... a deposit. And if you, as so much as shed your hair, you're not getting it back. At least that's how it is with Enterprise. <laughs> it's definitely, definitely really bad because even when I was in Europe, we rented a car and there was like one tiny, tiny, tiny little ding and they took off <laughs> like money so from that. That was me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm just like, how do you know that wasn't there before? I'm not looking for these tiny dings when I take the car because yeah. they make you look it over and mark where you see anything oh, so no, that they when they, they can compare it and it's just like, I'm not looking for the shit. <laughs> anyway, so Elizabeth did later say that Jens had made her clean the car with Coca-Cola because oh, I guess what? there was this... Okay, so there's this belief that Coca-Cola can eat through basically anything, I guess, because it's just such a strong, like, erosive acid or something like that. And so you that was that her... <laughs> yeah, and so that was a major belief back then, I guess. And a lot of people like, still believe that. Grandmas tell you if you have a stomach ache, eat salting crackers and ginger <laughs> and drink ginger ale. <laughs> she was like, Oh, he made me clean the car with Coca-Cola, but there was no evidence of that either. Cause you would have seen if something had been cleaned up. Yeah, exactly. This I thought was interesting. The only place I heard this was in the documentary, so I don't know how accurate that is. But there was a guy named Tony Buchanan who claims that Elizabeth and another man who wasn't Jens brought a car to him to be cleaned of blood. He only identified the man as Ned or Edward B in the documentary. I don't know if they had a specific name or not, but Tony Buchanan said that there was a bloody knife that had been in the car between the console and the front seat. Tony claims to have tried to talk to Gardner about this and that he was brushed off, but Ricky Gardner denies having ever talked to Tony about the car. We're going to call him Ned Ed B. <laughs> Ned Ed B. Ned Ed B. And so as they're interviewing, they're starting to kind of narrow in more on Elizabeth and Jens, thinking they probably did this because there's no way that the mileage on the rental car could have been from Wait, why the did fact they have a rental car again? Because they went up to D.C. So they did go to D.C. So they went to D.C. And while they were there, they allegedly saw a couple of movies, had lunch and things like that. Okay, so there's two different versions of the story, and we'll kind of go into it a little bit more later, but Jens says that he didn't kill Elizabeth's parents. He was up in D.C. basically establishing an alibi by buying two tickets to the movies and all this kind of stuff. And so he says Elizabeth was the one who went down and did everything, and then Elizabeth saying Jens was the one who did it. <laughs> so Well, who did it. <laughs> we'll go into that a little bit more in the trial aspect of this case because it's it was definitely uh, it's a trial. Yeah, well, it's a trial, but also just the fact that Elizabeth she was very out for herself because once she realized that <laughs> there was a possibility of the death penalty, she made a deal with the prosecutor. Ooh. 
<laughs> okay, so, like I said, they were narrowing in on Elizabeth and Jens. They interviewed Jens as well, and at first he was hesitant to cooperate. They asked if he would be willing to give over blood, fingerprint, and footprint samples for them to compare to the stuff they found at the crime scene. He initially said that he would need to clear that with the German embassy. And so a few days later, he calls the detectives and he says he'll cooperate, but he's busy with school work and all that. So he can't do it until the following week. However, on October 12th, 1985, Jens and Elizabeth flee the country. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. So I believe it was one of Elizabeth's half brothers had called the detectives to let them know that Jens and Elizabeth had left. And so The detectives go to Charlottesville to verify that they had left, and Elizabeth's roommate hands them a letter that Jens wrote. And I have a quote here because I feel like the quotes are very important in understanding, one, why they were found guilty, and two, why I don't think Jens is completely innocent in all of this. He might not have actually killed the parents, but he definitely helped in the aftermath (laughs) of covering it up. So, quote, I assume that especially you, Mr. Gardner, will be very excited by now, which is why I hate to disappoint you. And then in parentheses, well, that's not exactly true. End parentheses. I suggest that you continue your investigation as before. Undoubtedly, you will find whom you are looking for. As for me, I am afraid you must remain, as Officer Reed put it, only, quote, 99% sure, unquote, of my innocence. From what Liz has told me of what you discovered at Loose Chippings, I can only say that I am incapable of such a thing. I do not have many friends, but I think they will substantiate this, and my long-standing dissatisfaction with my life here, unquote. So even if he wasn't involved in the murders, as he has repeatedly claimed, and as the DNA evidence later proved that he, well, not proved, but... Didn't help. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I don't know. Even if he didn't do the murders, he was definitely complicit in a way. He was involved. Yeah. So first they meet in Paris, taking different flights, I guess. And I saw that Elizabeth had dyed her hair to try and like, I guess, look different. (laughs) She dyed her hair uh, like a bright red or something like that. So they traveled to Luxembourg. They planned to drive to Thailand to get Jens's birth certificate in Bangkok because that's where he was born, if you remember. So they rented a car and they got as far as Bulgaria's border where they were told that they needed to get visas at the embassy. There was a car accident. So they had a brief appearance in traffic court before they ended up just deciding to fly the rest of the way to Thailand. While they were in Thailand, they needed money to get by, obviously. Jens claims that Elizabeth wanted to deal drugs and that he talked her out of it, but who knows, you know? I mean, yeah, she was a drug addict, but I mean... Oh, I forgot she was a drug addict. (laughs) Well, that's the thing is that I don't think an addict is the best person to sell the drugs because they're probably going to partake more in the drugs than they're they're actually going to sell. Buy the drugs and then like, what is it called? Front the drugs from the supplier. And then instead of getting the money to pay for said drugs, take El Drugos and (laughs) um, not have money for the supplier. And that is my description of drugs. <laughs> it, was, it was very beautiful. Thank you. So Jens explains that they basically isolated themselves from everyone. They only talked to each other and they didn't actually talk about the murders by name. They called it our little nasty. Ew. <laughs> yeah. That's gross. That sounds like a porno. 
<laughs> well, yeah. So when they were in Thailand, they got Canadian passports forged, and then they went to Singapore, then Moscow, before flying to England, where they posed as Tim and Julia Holt, a married Canadian couple who were attending the University of Kent. So while they were in England, they passed a lot of bad checks. Why is that always how people get caught? It's never them getting caught because of the murder. It's because they are doing something stupid elsewhere. What's that guy? He's that gangster dude. He got caught for tax fraud or tax evasion. Yeah, uh, Al Capone. I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they passed about $9,000 worth of bad checks. Ooh. And that's how they got caught. Because Ooh. at first their system worked because they were never in the same store. Like one of them would write a check to buy a jacket or something. And then they would return the jacket at a different location of that same store. And so they would get the money, but the check would bounce. So that's how they were getting money. However, they went from wherever they were in England to Bath, which is another part of England where they changed their aliases to Christopher Platt No and Tara Lucy No. They ended up slipping up here because they decided to change up their game by going to the same store. They would just kind of keep their distance. But cashier noticed them, became suspicious, and alerted a security card who followed them, and then they got arrested in the subway. (laughs) They get even more stupid because they had kept all of their love letters, which they would (laughs) refer to this crime in Virginia. Scotland Yard, which is the UK's equivalent of a police force, basically they called around until they managed to contact Bedford County Police Department and alerted them that the two had been captured on May 25th of 1986. Come pick up your people. We don't want them. (laughs) Come get these morons. One thing I want to note about these stupid love letters is that one of them included some Nazi dirty talk foreplay, which I thought was really gross. What do you mean? I, I didn't write down the specific quotes, but they mention it in the documentary. And I was like, this is disgusting. You two are disgusting. What do you mean? I, 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 I don't remember the specifics. I just remember them. I don't know. Hey, I made off Hillary. Hey, you're sexy. Wow. Want to come back to my place? Sure. Hitler. Okay. Follow me. And then in another one of the letters, Jens wrote, quote, were I to meet your parents, I have the ultimate weapon. Strange things are happening within me. I'm turning more and more into a Christ figure, whatever that means. Um, I believe I would either make them completely lose their wits, get heart attacks, or they would become lovers of the world. Love is a form of meditation and the ultimate weapon against your parents, unquote. So here are a couple of other quotes from other letters. This one's another one from Jens. He said, quote, you are in a horrible position, more horrible than mine. Let me clear a couple things up, erase all written evidence of Bedford, cross it out, unquote. So didn't do a very good job. You left it in the notes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, that and it's like that quote right there is essentially him admitting that he covered this up. Back to the Nazi, like, foreplay. <laughs> Stop. I'm just like, did not realize that he would be murdered? I don't what? know. I don't like, know. Like, he is not what they want. Like, he is not white, blue-eyed, blonde hair. Yeah. Hair. You would not have made that out. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah, I, I can't explain their thought process at all. I don't want to. <laughs> I'm just um, kind of 
so many questions. And then this final quote is from Elizabeth. It says, quote, I've been upset, scared and lonely. You won't leave me to take the rap alone, unquote. So remember what I mentioned before about how she admitted how she loved Jens or whatever, how she would manipulate men essentially into doing whatever she wanted. I feel like this quote was kind of in that vein where she's like, I'm going to make myself seem vulnerable so that you will feel bad for me and then you will do this thing for me. Yeah. Because Jens ended up taking the blame. (laughs) So by the time that they had actually captured them in the UK, Chuck Reed had quit the police force and gone to another job. So Ricky Gardner was the only one on the case. He flew to London on June 2nd, 1986 with Jim Updike, who is then Bedford County's prosecutor. Suring didn't have a lawyer present at the interview and he claims that one of the Scotland Yard sergeants had threatened to harm Elizabeth if he didn't sign the waiver forms, like waiving the fact that he could have a lawyer. But there's no actual like record of that. Of course, I don't know how you would have a record of a threat like that, oh, you know. I'll say not- <laughs> <laughs> Basically, Jens decided to take the blame for the murder because he believed that because of his father's position as a German uh, consulate person that he would have diplomatic immunity. He thought he would be extradited to Germany, thought he'd be tried as a minor because he was only 18 and then face a maximum. That's an adult. That's not a minor. I don't know what the laws are like there. I mean, I know that like you can drink and stuff at 16, but I don't know what they officially like legally consider an adult. You know, he believed he would be tried as minor, face a maximum of 10 years in prison and then be able to get parole in five years. So he claimed he was the one who did this because he was trying to prevent Elizabeth from being executed and to save her. But joke's on him (laughs) because the U.S. only grants such immunity to employees who work at embassies in D.C. and his dad did not. (laughs) Once they started to realize that they weren't as safe as they thought they were, that's when they started to kind of turn on each other. Where did his dad work out? His dad originally was in Atlanta and then went to Detroit, remember? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, he knew Eminem. So in the process of interviews and all that kind of stuff, they both underwent psychological evaluations. Elizabeth was actually diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. We can go into a little bit more of that in the next episode because that's one of those very stigmatized diagnoses. And it's not usually as bad as people make it out to be. that what they considered uh, multiple personality disorder? No, that one is dissociative identity disorder. Oh, okay, okay. So no, it's okay. Uh, borderline boiled down very, very, very <laughs> substantially is extreme emotional reactions to situations. Oh, okay. So it's like you can go from one extreme to the other. You have black and white thinking, so you're not really able to see nuance, <laughs> things like that. And then Jens was diagnosed with folie adieu, which is considered a shared delusional disorder. I had to look up a definition of this because I'd heard of it, but I didn't know how to explain it. But basically it's a psychiatric syndrome where symptoms of a delusional belief and sometimes hallucinations are transmitted from one individual to another. So basically, I guess they believed that whatever Elizabeth was believing, Jens was also believing as well, even though it wasn't necessarily the truth. Or at least that's what they're claiming here. I don't know. Anyway. Now, uh, like I mentioned, they started to turn on each other. So Elizabeth broke off the relationship with Jens through a letter. Didn't even attempt to do it in person. I think she did it through their uh, Nazi foreplay. (laughs) No, I don't think she did. (laughs) And then she made a deal with the prosecutor, Jim Updike. Yeah, right. In exchange for her helping to testify against Jens, Jim Updike said that he would support her on her first bid for parole and she would be able to avoid the electric chair. And at the time, 
40% of all parole requests in Virginia were granted. I assume that statistic has changed. I don't actually know. So she pled guilty to accessory before the fact, and she was sentenced to 90 years in prison. Ooh, you get parole after that. After 90 years. Because <laughs> it was, um, I think, two consecutive life sentences because it was both parents. And so once Jens realized that he didn't have the immunity and would be facing capital murder charges, he recanted that confession that he made saying that he was the one who did it and he said that Elizabeth was the one who had killed the Hastings, not him. Can you bring up recanted confessions in court? I think you can unless they file a motion to strike it from the record. I'm like, I'm not recanting nothing. You're just going <laughs> to use it against me. Yeah, but I think it's because he realized that Elizabeth was turning on him. He was like, well, why should I still be covering for this person if they don't care about me? You know, a lot of stuff that I've seen was basically saying that these two were obsessed with each other to the point of they would do anything for each other, just quote unquote, or at least Jens would do anything for Elizabeth. Like I mentioned, he was going to be facing capital murder charges because of that confession. But the European Court of Human Rights ruled that Jens could not be extradited to the United States unless the U.S. dropped the death penalty as a sentencing option. And so eventually they ended up doing that. And so Jens was extradited from the U.K. And that's where we're going to... The U.S. was like, psych! No. <laughs> death penalty is very controversial. I'm not going to say anything about it because I could go on a long tangent about it. But I guess the death penalty isn't really a thing in Europe. I don't know. I haven't actually looked into that, but I think it's not a thing in Europe or Canada. So it makes sense that they wouldn't want to extradite one of their citizens to face this punishment because it's not a punishment they would face in their own country. But at the same time, if they had done this crime, then they did it in that country. So therefore, they have to follow that country's laws. Exactly. But that was like a historical ruling there, the Court of Human Rights thing. So anyway, that's where we're going to leave off for today, because next we're going to go into the plethora of information from the trial and then some of the aftermath, some of the stuff that's happened within recent years, like we touched on earlier. I have a very interesting interview uh, with one of the people involved in Yen Suring's defense, and I'm very excited to share that with you guys. There wasn't as much witty banter this time, but that's okay. We'll get into a little bit more next time. We'll talk about the trial, we'll talk about some of the newer stuff, and we'll give our personal thoughts on the alleged, well, I guess not technically alleged, they were convicted. <laughs> Him and our Nazi foreplay selves are in jail. I shouldn't have mentioned the Nazi foreplay. <laughs> Whoa, that bothers me. Yeah, I mean, it bothered me too, that's why I wrote it. And then I, I, I yeah. He's like, shut up, shut up. Shut up. Shut up. I don't want to talk oh. about it. Cause I, especially because it's like imagining these two doing anything sexual is gross. <laughs> Yens. Yes, Yens is, uh, eh, I'm not going to say anything. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so, like, shut up, shut up. Shut up, shut up. Shut up. Oh, gross. Okay, anyway. 2,000 followers today. Yeah. So as of uh June 30th, we have hit 2,000 followers. Thank you and guys so much. She runs the page, truecrime.memes. Her name's Lindsay. She's so funny. Go follow her, guys. So, we are on Instagram at Shockingly Wicked Podcast. We are on Twitter at Wicked Podcast One. We are on TikTok at Shockingly Wicked. 
We are on a Facebook group called Shockingly Wicked Podcast. Again, it's a group, not a page. We're on YouTube. Search up Shockingly Wicked Podcast and we should pop up. And if you want a link, we need a hundred of you to get together and subscribe. Yes. Even if you don't end up watching our stuff, just go on and subscribe because what's it going to cost you? Five seconds to click a button and then you help us get a URL. So and you can tell your friends. We'll come back for part two. We hope to see you there. We hope to see you on our social media. Um, I'm going to finish eating my Oreos. So. Okay, bye. Peace out.